All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome back to Your Brain on Science. In this episode, Elena and I will be talking about psychedelic harm reduction and what that looks like all across the board. Uh, so to get started, we're going to discuss what harm reduction is in a broader sense, and then we'll dive into what that means for psychedelic drugs specifically. Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about drug policy and the use of different compounds for, you know, medicinal, uh, recreational, spiritual reasons, but... Despite what everyone's reasons are, the same general principles can apply for safe use of these compounds. So, of course, there's some special considerations that are necessary for those using psychedelics in larger doses or for mental health treatments. But uh, we'll get into that later this episode. Yeah. So, you know, harm reduction is a pretty big, I think, word, right? Um, I guess it's two words, but it's a pretty big concept. Um, it's a concept that encompasses several things. And it's more often heard of when we're talking about drugs that are not psychedelics, you know, like opioids due to the media attention to the, the so-called opioid crisis. Um, and interestingly, the origins of harm reduction actually come from those performing sex work or using drugs IV, so intravenously. Uh, one of the first harm reduction models was actually called the Mercy Harm Reduction Model, uh, and it's from the 1980s in Liverpool. And the success of this program can be attributed to the use of outreach workers, the distribution of education, and providing clean equipment to drug users. Uh, and that was clearly evident in the fact that an HIV epidemic did not, in fact, happen in Mercy. So this seems pretty powerful, right? These models have now actually been applied across several countries in Europe and in some places in the U.S., uh, with San Francisco mirroring a lot of the work being done uh, that was done in Liverpool. Uh, so today we have several recognized harm uh, reduction strategies across the U.S. You want to tell us about these, Alina? Yeah, of course. So like you mentioned with opioids, that's where a lot of people have heard of harm reduction concepts is from um, stuff related to opioids. And mm -hmm. a lot of these are typically thought of as like maintenance programs. So this is like basically a person would get a prescription of heroin or methadone or suboxone which could be used in place of illicit or legal drugs so mm -hmm. um what a lot of people don't think about right is that opioids are legal and used medically all the time um it's not just people who are out there using um, iv heroin or things of that nature um people can be addicted to opioids you know from oxycodone and yeah. might um, need some assistance, right? So essentially the prescription of these compounds helps uh, the user have a safe supply, like I mentioned, not getting it off the street, um, and basically allows them to maintain a biological homeostasis, if you will, mm -hmm. um, following long-term use of opioids. So basically, in other words, the driving principle behind this is that um, it allows these programs to facilitate stability in the person's life while they have ex uh, reduced symptoms of withdrawal or less intense drug cravings. Um, and a lot of these compounds, like so 
for like methadone and suboxone, strong euphoric effects are not experienced um, typically with the doses that are given out in these clinics. So this allows basically for people to maintain normal lives, keep their jobs, take care of their families without risk of overdose or hospitalization, which is really cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, And so some other programs include safe injection sites and needle exchanges. Um, And sites like these promote the safe use of injectable drugs. And these have shown decreased rates of contracting uh, blood-borne pathogens, illnesses due to drug use. And I want to repeat here, okay, that there is evidence, there is hard quantifiable evidence, right, that safe injection sites and needle exchanges significantly help to lower disease and drug-related overdose. So I want to stop here really quickly and address the fact that so many people are opposed to these injection sites mm-hmm. with the argument that, like, you're just encouraging people to do these drugs. Well, you know, based on what you just talked about, right, people are not going in there and experiencing, you know, euphoria and having like a great time. People aren't going in there for recreational fun use, right? Like it's no one's walking into a safe injection clinic and asking for uh, like for a a recreational dose of X, Y, and Z. So I think there's such a, such a big stigma. And so I'm from New York city and recently we just got approval for safe injection sites and the amount of people that I see posting like these crazy infographics that just make absolutely no sense, right? Just being so upset that like these things are legal. Like take a step back, take a deep breath, sit down, maybe calm down. And there's, you know, look at the evidence. There's a real quantifiable evidence that these things work. So I, mean, I just sounded so angry there, but it's, it, this has been something that's just, it's no, it, it's been really frustrating to me, right? It's, it's really hard, um, I think, to talk about this stuff and not feel strongly, I think, one way or the other, because this is something that's now been so stigmatized and um, so publicized as this horrible thing. And, and the root of all evil in our society is, is this, right? Like, absolutely mm-hmm. not. I think, well, take the- a step back. The thing is, people are going to do drugs whether these sites exist or not. That's just a big fact of life. Like, so With everything. If, if yeah. Can, it's, it's like everything. If somebody has a safe space at a bar to go drink alcohol, but somebody who wants to use intravenously doesn't have a safe space to do that. So I just think it's just quite interesting about the argument of like, oh, well, you're just like promoting illicit drug use and you know it's like okay but would you rather see people die as a cause or would you rather see people be alive and safe and you know and even if they are going to the safe injection sites to do it recreationally they're not going to die from yeah, exactly. getting a bloodborne pathogen or like disease you know and like you mentioned earlier with the program in liverpool um the fact that they did clean equipment um, and needle exchange to drug users during the HIV AIDS like epidemic, it didn't happen there because yeah. they provided people a means to use like their you're drug. keeping yourself safe. These individuals are able to do this in a safe way, right? Like no one wants to be addicted to drugs. Like I, I will say that, right? I think that's a pretty true statement. And I, I think that you're safer, your community is safer, people are, you know maybe a little bit healthier. You're not contracting disease. And also you talked about people stay on a main maintenance dose of whatever. That's also, you know, lessens the need for drugs to be on the streets. So all of this is just like benefits, right? For communities, for society, whatever. So people that really have a problem with this, I think they miss the nuance of what these safe sites provide, you know, and mm-hmm. it's all 
fear-mongering and just horribly reductive. Oh, yeah. um, but anyway, so I hear, <laughs> anyway, after, you know, after all that, um, I hear uh, that this is, you know, also the case for naloxone administration for opioid overdose, uh, which Elena, I know you're super, super involved in um, sort of naloxone training and, and safety training. Maybe you want to tell us what naloxone is and sort of what this comprises. Yes. Uh, so basically, uh, staying on the opioid topic of things, we'll get to psychedelics, I promise, but this is important yeah. <laughs> background. Um, but so naloxone is a opioid antagonist that uh, basically is given to people who are experiencing an uh, opioid overdose. So you, it comes in a nasal spray um, or like an injectable uh, and essentially, when somebody's overdosing, you can give this drug and it knocks the opioids off of the receptors. Uh, it's very competitive and it essentially rescues um, the person from respiratory, from fatal respiratory depression for at least a short period of time until they can get to the hospital. Um, yeah. it's and this really is a really amazing... rapid process, right? Yeah. Like it's like immediate and you'll see the change in people right away. And one yeah. of the big things that, so you're, you're obviously a trainer and what we'll hear from you. I think <laughs> I, I did a training a few years ago um, when I was in college actually. And one of the biggest things that they said is these people will be angry because you just you oh, yeah. rip them out of a world, right? Like they were or just like in, more, even though it's saving their life. Than- more it's confused. shocking yeah. confused yeah it's like a state it's almost yeah. like a, a state of shock right like you've just been pulled out of something so it's so 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 incredible to you know have yeah. extremely powerful like yeah um and everyone should carry it honestly check with your states to see if, if there's a way that you can get it um i know in virginia like we get it for free which is really cool mm-hmm. um and you mentioned me being a trainer so myself and several others at um, VCU um, in the pharmacology department are certified lay rescuers. And then our student organization, the Farm Talk Student Org, um, which includes myself and some other graduate students, we've partnered with uh, the Medical Student Association and have been providing um, overdose education and naloxone training to incoming medical students, as well as doing outreach on uh, the undergraduate campuses. So mm-hmm. we did a day of remembrance for opioid overdose. And I think that day in our outreach, we handed out like a hundred doses of Narcan. So that was really cool. Um, Yeah. So um, I love this cause. I think it's super important. You can save somebody's life and it's just a great example of harm reduction outreach and how, you know, how powerful that this can be that you can save somebody's life just by carrying something in your purse, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, And it's also Um, given away like at pharmacies sometimes or, at many, many music festivals and and several psychedelic spaces as well, because a lot of times you don't know kind of if you're doing powders, you know, you don't know what you're getting. Yes. Okay. You have provided us the perfect segue. So <laughs> Narcan is given away at festivals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now we can start talking about psychedelic harm reduction, right? Let's yeah. get into that. So I know some organizations like Dance Safe, and many of you might have heard of Z- the Zendo Project. Uh, these are two organizations that provide assistance uh, to psychedelic users at festivals. Um, so this leads to, you know, another aspect of really, really important aspect of harm reduction with psychedelics and other drugs, right? The adulteration of powders. Uh, it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem, I think, with the rise of fentanyl and fentanyl uh, analogs. So you know, super important here. Yes. So this is something I literally tell everyone that I know that does anything. Like, um, I say, test your drugs, make sure you know your source. Like, 
Yeah. I, I don't care what, you know, anyone wants to do, but I always want to make sure people are doing it safely. Um, I actually keep fentanyl test strips in my house, in my junk drawer. And mm. if I'm like going out to a party where I don't really know anybody or like if people come to my house, it's like a pregame, I, I like give them out to people. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, like, I don't that. really know you, but just in case, <laughs> like please the test strip theory. They're just like pH strips. Like, you know, you just like dip them in a solution. And and here's a tip for like if people are like, oh, but like I don't want to like put water in my like supply. You can like switch baggies and then put a couple drops of the solution if you're using like one of those kits or um, just water in your bag and like shake it up like the old bag. So it's just got like the remnants. You don't have the to like, remnants, fix anything. The, yeah. And then you can dip your strip in and it'll tell you um, what's in it. So what a great tip. Yeah. Uh, you can get, you know, test strips on Amazon, everyone. Like, please, it's very not yeah. a difficult thing uh, to get. I would just um, note, though, that yeah. unfortunately, they're still considered paraphernalia in some states. Yes. So yes. Make look up your laws. Your, you know, your laws. Definitely look up your laws. And again, there are, you know, usually organizations or safe spaces that will provide sometimes drug testing. So just ask around. I don't think there's any amount of work that's too great that goes into something like this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that is super, super cool that you do that. You're like the little uh, test strip fairy, Um, (laughs) especially with it being illegal. It's a little bit, ooh, a little bit of razzle-zazzle in there. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) So a lot of European organizations actually have offered drug checking services since like 1992. Um, And these services now actually operate in over 20 countries. So I personally think it's really backwards that the U.S. is not in on this, right? Like we don't have organized drug testing available in every single state. Um, I mean, if we start talking about what we don't have available in every single state. I think we can sit here for days and days, but anyway. Uh, So luckily, luckily though, uh, the nonprofit organization that I just mentioned, Dance Safe, offers on-site testing of the contents of pills and powders um, at various EDM events around the U.S. So if you're at an EDM concert, if you're at a festival, something like that, look for Dance Safe. Uh, They also sell kits for people who use substances uh, to test the contents the contents uh, of the substances themselves that you might have in, you know, whatever form. Mm -hmm. Um, Pillreports.com, super cool. I didn't actually know about this before we sat down to do this episode, Uh, but pillreports.com actually invites people who use ecstasy to send samples of substances uh, to the laboratory for testing um, and then publishes the results online. So there is a public forum for folks to check on their pills and and whatnot. DanceSafe is also super super cool we're gonna stick with that because uh they provide like a ton of other stuff too so i volunteer at like a couple music festivals and um they've been there and i've needed like earplugs because i don't stay up like up for the 3 a.m shows i'm like doing like green team i'm like trying to go to bed at like midnight but (laughs) um so they have like earplugs which is great they've got like chapstick hand sanitizer condoms narcan and most of it's usually free like it's it's pretty much free so yeah, super cool. Um, we love them. We're not getting paid by them also. Like we were just really into hard just to put that out. We are definitely not getting paid by anyone right now, just to put that out there in case anyone wants to pay us. Our donations <laughs> are open now, so please donate. Always open. Um, yeah. Anyways, so we Zarmin also mentioned Zendo Project. Um yeah. it's a little bit different and it's an organization that's run through through the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies 
Um, and it aims to provide harm reduction and support services at festivals as well. Uh, most notably like Burning Man and Lightning in a Bottle. And they use principles from the MAPS therapy models um, in these kind of safe space tents to provide more emotional support to folks who are uh, tripping without police intervention. Um, this is awesome. And I actually applied to be a Zendo volunteer like a lot when I was in college. <laughs> and That's I awesome. never ended up making it, but because um, I was like, <laughs> I can't afford to like go. But uh, oh God, yeah. anyways, but so while this is really awesome, Sometimes, and like Zermian is going to talk about in a second, this can be a little bit problematic because either volunteers or, you know, people might be um, not able to make the right call on whether someone actually needs medical intervention. Yeah, which is, you know, it's a little bit sticky. Um, Just this last December, actually, there was a civil lawsuit for wrongful death uh, brought by Gatlin's family. Um, against MAPS uh, and others. Uh, so this is someone that was impacted here. I'll, I'll tell you about the trial. Um, so the trial heard three weeks of testimony um, and found that MAPS employees were negligent and played a substantial factor in the death of a festival uh, festival goer. Uh, Zendo volunteers themselves were not named as negligent, but because MAPS is the parent of Zendo, uh, there's been some, some concerns. The person was originally like taken to a medical tent, which referred her to Zendo, which is, again, ran by MAPS. Um, and therefore, the company running the medical tent was found to be at greater, greater fault. Um, and what's interesting, though, is that MAPS noted that they wanted to include the festival goer and her parents to be considered by the jury for a percentage of fault in the harm that led to her death, uh, but that the judge excluded this from consideration. And I just want to say that this is a bit of a red flag, and this is not how you do harm reduction, right? Even though we do fully recognize that this is a very complicated situation and a, a very difficult situation. Yeah, right. And that and that's why I just mentioned it and why I, I wanted to talk about that with you, right? Because harm reduction is so important and there's a lot of really great things about it. And and this stuff happens. Like and I think it's important to note. I didn't want to like talk about these organizations and stuff without highlighting like, yeah, once in a while there are cases where things don't go as planned. And I think the bigger issue like with this is how do you separate out all the entities? Because the only um, reason I think Zendo itself wasn't held at fault was because they're not their own, like, official entity. But mm. why did the med like, even the people who are supposed to be the medical tent people caring for, like, checking on these, like, festival goers, they just were like, oh, you're obviously on a psychedelic, yeah, go, go to, to the Zendo. harm reduction tent. But really, yeah. a fully encompassing harm reduction model at a festival no matter should be implicated in each like factor of the tense, right? So if you're providing medical care, you should be educated in harm reduction enough to know, hey, is this person just needing emotional support or should I check them for vital yeah, or, or actual biological other, things yeah. happening, right? It's 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 not one or the other. It's, it's all at the same time. Oh yeah, very frustrating. But I think that just highlights the need for, you know fully comprehensive harm reduction training because Zendo, I think super cool and super amazing. Like yeah. the fact that we have these tents at these festivals or like, you know, in places that you would need these things, like I think so incredible and Zendo really does such an amazing job. Um, I think, but again, like situations, like you just mentioned situations like this arise and it's, it's always good for us to stop, take a step back and be like, what can we be doing better? Right. And there's right. so many things that could have been identified in, in this case, actually. 
I think let's sum this up. I think the main things with psychedelics um, is that these are, I recognize extremely transformative drugs, right. That are used oftentimes recreationally in settings uh, where I think you really need to be aware of a few things, right? So these are the things that I think you should take away. I think you need to make sure you are aware of who you're with, Mm -hmm. what you're taking. Um, And again, as Elena mentioned, as we mentioned, this involves what you're taking and how much you're taking of it involves testing your drugs. Please, 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 please test your drugs (laughs) Um, and definitely know how much of it you're taking. And I'm going to say also, if you're taking, if you're taking other drugs or if you're, you know, including alcohol in the mix, or if there's anything else being mixed with, with a drug, I think what the interactions could be, I think that's really important to sort of keep in mind, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. at, at festivals, especially like to candy flip. Um, and, you know, so I think just make sure you know what's coming. I think being informed is probably the most powerful thing ever. So if you know that this is stuff that you're going to engage in, just read up on some stuff, be a little bit informed about what you're going to experience, what's going to come up for you. Um, and when you have the substances, please, please, please test. And this is us. This is me promoting safety above anything, right? Uh, so let's be young, fun, and flirty and have a great time and be super spontaneous <laughs> and fun. Um, but you shouldn't be so spontaneous that you're skipping over safety things, right? Just be careful, please. Safety um, in all of this and everything we talk about, I think is the number one priority. Yes. <laughs> what do you think, Elena? <laughs> I just went off on like that, that tangent. <laughs> no, I think that's that's all really great. And I know you mentioned candy flipping, so I just want to say for for those oh, yeah. listeners who, who may not know what candy flipping is, um, it's basically when you take a classic like psychedelics, so like LSD or psilocybin or what have you, and then you also take MDMA or ecstasy, um, and you combine them. It's very popular among festival goers, uh, so. That's just something also to, you know, when you're doing that and you're adding um, MDMA, which is like an amphetamine, which we've talked about in previous episodes, you need to make sure you're drinking like a lot more water, for example, than you would if you just had taken, you know, a half a tab of LSDs. Just like little things like that. Like talk Mm -hmm. to your friends who have done stuff, um, look stuff up on Reddit, you know, Um, the more you know, the better, like do what you want, but the more you know, the better. (laughs) Like it's your life, you know, just be safe. And yeah, so for me, psychedelics, like they're so insanely powerful. I'm just going to emphasize again, just know what you're taking. Do your research on the dose. Uh, If you don't want to do the research on the dose and just go for it, at least know what the drug's probably going to do to you. (laughs) Also, because part of this too is some of these compounds are are very similar, you know, like classic psychedelics or the serotonergic psychedelics. Um, But there's a ton of research chemicals out there as well. And um, nobody wants to be given an insanely vivid 30 hour trip from taking, you know, a DOI versus uh, when they were expecting a nice little six hour body high from, you know, yeah. something else. So it's just, you know, expect the unexpected because things when you're on these powerful substances can go differently. So not only is it like how I've been saying, like, know what you're taking, but know your surroundings, know who you're with. Um, it helps because some, some one random thing can like turn your whole trip inside out from what it was like before. 
So 100%. Yeah. And also a big consideration in all of this is that and this is something, you know, that is also thought about in, in terms of clinical trials, is that every single person can react differently to the same psychedelic, you know, one person may only need a quarter tab of acid to feel x thing. And then the next person needs to take two tabs, you know, so it's not just knowing your drugs, but also understanding your experience with them. Um, again, who you're with, the environment you're taking them in, like there's a lot, a lot, a lot to think about. Um, and, if, and of course, you know, not everyone is, is concerned with all of that, but it does play um, an experience, right? It, it does have a role in the experience. Uh, so whether it's it's taken into account or not. Yeah, and that's and that's a great point. And I think leads us really well into the final thoughts of this episode which is more aimed towards, you know, special considerations for psychedelic-assisted therapy. Um, So there is a really great paper um, called The Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a Trans-Theoretical Model for Clinical Practice, um, that talks about some of these considerations. And we'll link it in our blog for y'all with some other harm reduction links. I'm just going to call it PHRI for Mm -hmm. short. Uh, But Basically, it's it's just consistent with features commonly found across uh, psychotherapeutic orientations. So it's some it's taking from classic therapeutic principles, but enhancing them or bringing them into fit into the psychedelic context. So, for example, the establishment of like safety and rapport, uh, empathetic presence of the therapist, agreement on the task of therapy. Um, before the therapy actually starts. This is a really big one that's been talked about with psychedelics is um, is consent to the type of therapy or the task of therapy, um, as well as a positive regard and the authentic presence of the therapist. So are they there to actually like help you? Are they actively listening? These are all things that are normally taken into account in therapy, but combining these techniques across specialties to benefit a person during or after a psychedelic experience um, is really important. And how do we shift these principles to fit into that model? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, So this PHRI, I'm going to talk about some of the components, um, actually includes a preparation phase, psychedelic, the psychedelic experience, um, and then integration. However, a PHRI therapist does not actually need to administer nor be present with the patient during the psychedelic experience itself. Um, so in practice, these components, you know, inform and are responsive to each other and to the patient's evolving needs throughout the process. Um, so like most people seek out PHRI after they've had a psychedelic ex- experience. Um, but we have also seen this integrated into psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, and the most important aspect of using psychedelics for mental health, though, we think, I think, is the use of proper integration, right? Like really understanding the experience that you just went through and integrating that into your life, whatever you've been working on and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I think proper integration is something that the research right now seriously lacks. Um, Cause we've got, you know, when you think about it in these, these trials, we have folks who are experiencing like trauma, severe mental health states, sometimes suicidal ideation that are uh, taking or being given psychedelics by therapists taking them on their own and then somewhat left out to dry after the experience like this is something that I think we really need to talk about more and focus on and I've been pretty vocal about that (laughs) this past year but so this paper also um, refers to the unfolding process have you heard of that Zarmin? No, I have not. Tell me more. Yeah. So this um, talks about like the unraveling 
of the insights about oneself and one's relationship or relationships after a psychedelic experience. So, you know, when people talk about like ego dissolution and like this Mm -hmm. whole experience, like I think this gives it like a less cheesy name. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Like this unfolding or unraveling of the self. Um, And this can take place over the span of weeks or months after psychedelics. So I think when we think about follow-ups from these clinical trials, they're not on a regular basis. It's not like they're meeting with the therapist three times a week um, or like once a week even a lot of these are you have like your initial three follow-ups right after as Mm -hmm. integration and then you have a follow-up phone call or follow-up survey survey one month three months six months 12 months it's not like you're like having this person that you're able to talk to as you go through like this up and down process yeah, 100%. And that's exactly what it is, right? It's a process. The unraveling can be sort of a process. It's not a linear situation. So if someone who's had a, a psychedelic experience and feels wonderful, amazing directly after, their mood could drop, right? Or they could be completely apathetic to everything that they just experienced. Um, so it's so, 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 so important to have a stable and sort of maintained long-term integration process because I, I don't think integration ever truly stops, right? Right. Um, with this psych- psychedelic therapy. And I think that is such a big part of harm reduction. And that could be such a big statement too, because you know, when do we also even have just stable mental health uh, practices for people that, that need them, right? So imagine after an incredibly transformative psychedelic experience that you know, experience so much benefit immediately after, but are we, you know, promoting sort of the maintenance of that amazingness or or whatever benefit that they got out of, out of this experience? Is that true? The answer right now is uh, maybe not. Right. And at the very least, it's not standard, right? Integration processes are not standardized and um, not very well characterized. And again, you know, it's, it's going to be individual to, um, the, the psychotherapy team and maybe, you know, especially to the individuals as well. But I think that there needs to be the, the most general, this is what integrations should look like. Everyone should have long-term support. I, I think it's a little bit mean of us to extract, you know, the data points that we get and, and sort of what we, what we get from the studies and, and follow up for three months maybe. And then after that, it's like, oh, you know, I'll see you later. <laughs> Right. And that brings up what you just said is like a really good point about we treat these people like they're data points. They're people. There are people in these studies that are having these experiences that are that have PTSD, that have treatment resistant depression. But when the, you know, the papers come out, it's like, oh, look at these nice little single data points of all these different people's experience. Those are people. Yeah, those are one real people. Yeah. yeah, and humans. And I, I feel like this is, you know, a conversation we can have in, in general across like yeah. psychiatry research, right? Across ev- all research that in, in needs and requires like uh, subjects and participants to come in. So I yeah. think part of harm reduction is to maintain that harm reduction, right? It's not like a short-term process. I think it's a very long-term process that um, we need to have significant community engagement and, and clinician engagement and participant engagement with. So 
Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not, it's, it's a lot. It's not just knowing your drugs, right? It's not yeah, for sure. just talking about your intentions to use or lack of intentions or whatever you're feeling, you know, but it's, ha- it's giving people the tools and being aware of all the possible outcomes of the trip. It's, it's having emotional support throughout the good, throughout the challenging. And that's something we need to do better with, especially with psychedelics. Like these aren't just party drugs to mess around with while they can be, they're also just extremely powerful mind altering substances and i think that kind of gets lost a lot with the current like hype situation for sure yeah so you know what this feels like a great place for us to end (laughs) this was a lot of information and kind of sat there and went on like multiple rants uh thanks for sticking with us um and if you have any harm reduction tips techniques or comments in general please don't hesitate to engage with us on this topic this is something that both of us feel very strongly about right safety can never be taken too seriously please be safe be careful all right <laughs> yes. Uh thanks so much for listening everybody. We hope that you learned something today. Um and please like and subscribe, follow, share with everyone you know and tune in next week for some exciting conversations with Sarmeen and special guest. Ooh. All right.